let's start in um, Numbers, chapter 13. Wise guy. Wait, wait, what is it? Numbers? Numbers 13. So funny. What joke? Oh, I was, I was talking about life. Life's a funny joke. Oh, wait, are you referring to when life said Bibles and beers and I said that's such a bad joke, but it's kind of funny? Bibles and beers? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, why Well, one day we're passing out Bibles and everyone's like, oh, it's kind of like peanuts at a baseball game, like just throwing away. Like, hey, hey, Bibles, hey! And so someone's like, oh, Bibles and beer. It was funny then, but like you would think about it, like such so stupid Bibles and beer works in Germany. Hey, but on on that note, <laughs> that's how all the fans died at Dodger Stadium. <laughs> oh, my head fell off the third deck. <laughs> it's like a, like the beer bottle, like the comet trail, and the head's falling. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, on that note, on a serious note, though, um, um, you guys can pray for my uncle. He's an alcoholic, and some of you have kind of known that a little bit. It's been for a while, but um, this morning my family did an intervention to move him into getting help because he's he's probably near death. He he a couple of months ago vomited six liters of blood. Your body holds 10 to 12 liters. Oh, you so it, yeah, I think I might have. Um, so this morning we did an intervention, um, and it, it went okay. Um, he, it looks like he's going to rehab on Wednesday. I wasn't I wasn't allowed to be a part of it because I'm too I'm the nephew. They didn't want like nephews involved, so um, I wasn't a part of it. But I hear that he's going in on Wednesday. Hope. Cross your fingers, hope that works, because usually the idea is to get them to go the day you do the intervention, because they're going to change their mind, but um, we'll see. So we'll pray for him, because he needs to get saved, and he needs to live a couple more days so that that can happen. He's so close. My sister witnessed to him for like a whole year, and I, I think he's almost there. I think God will keep him until that day happens. Um, I hope, I pray for that. So, we'll pray for that when we get started. Um, but first, I want to read from Numbers 13, chap- chapter 13, verse 30, to kind of put us into um, the future of what our text sort of hints at in Genesis. So, Numbers 13, verse 30. This is after the 12 spies come back from the report of the Promised Land. They went to investigate. They come back, and they give a report. It was a bad report. The people are panicking, and in verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy the land, for we are well able to overcome the land. Then the men who had gone up with Caleb said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, 
and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And verse 33, there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves as grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Now, there's obviously a contrast in the reports. Caleb sees the land. We can take it. The other ten bad spies say, the people are mightier than us because they are the Nephilim. We can't do it. Caleb's looking at the land and the God who promised the land. The ten spies are looking at the people and their weakness before the people. The people are the Nephilim. And according to this context, the Nephilim are very big people. So, one's looking at a big God, the others are looking at big people, and they are being overcome by the big people because they're seeing themselves as very insignificant before giants. But Caleb sees himself as significant, although he's little, because he's looking at a giant God. So, Caleb, through God's eyes, and the ten spies, through their eyes, see two completely different things, leading to completely different results. The Nephilim were the center of the fear for the ten spies. So that'll bring us to Genesis chapter 6. And that's where we will remain. Genesis 6. I'll read up to verse 8. We'll pray and we'll get in. Genesis 6 verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. For man is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men, who were of old, the men of renown. Well, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Father, I pray for my uncle this evening and for the words of love that he heard from our family. God, we pray for a softened heart that you begin to break down the, the pillars of pride that have resisted you. And God, that you bring his, his help to him speedily. We pray for his deliverance from his bondage to alcohol. And we pray for the deliverance of his soul from bondage to sin. And Lord, we pray for ourselves. God, protect us from these lusting giants that may easily squash us and do the same thing to us. Who are we to think that we'll never be enslaved to any type of sin? Oh Lord, may your grace, as you gave it to Noah, may your grace guard us and keep us 
from the ways of this world and to keep us free as your sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So in chapter 4, we see the line of Cain. They're, they're kind of wicked. They're not doing things right. Lamech kills a man and he brags about it. And his sons are just, like the ostrich illustration, just piling their heads into the sand. We don't want anything about God. Just occupy ourselves with materialism and money and all sorts of entertainment. And then chapter 5 contrasts and looks at the line of Seth. Seth is the third son of Adam and Eve because Cain killed Abel. So Seth kind of replaces Abel. Cain's line is looking very wicked. But chapter 5 shows a Seth's line and they're worshipping Yahweh. They're, they're becoming worshippers. And we look at Enoch who walked with God and suddenly was gone. And so it's kind of a summation of that line. So we have Cain's ungodly line showing the seed of the serpent. And remember from Genesis 3.15... The seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. In other words, Jesus one time will come and crush Satan. Cain's line is following in the ways of the serpent. And Seth's line is following in the ways of Christ, who is going to come from his line. So we have this contrast split. And the world's getting bad. And right here in these first eight verses of chapter 6, it's summarizing how bad the world had become at this time. We know that when we get to verse 9, we enter into the flood narrative in which God, in his simple terms, um, wipes the, the, the earth clean as if it's a dirty garment, it's so filthy as sin, it just throws in the washing machine and it comes out clean for a brief period of time until the two-year-old gets mud on his shirt again. But that's, that's what's going to come is the flood. Now, in verse 9, where the flood starts, you notice it says, these are the generations of Noah. If you've been here for some time, you've learned to look for that word generations as a division in Genesis. The author has divided Genesis into 11 generations. The Hebrew we call this teledot. So, 11 teledots that serve as chapters, as divisions in the book, if you will. The first one was in 2.4. Chapter 1 was an introduction. 2 verse 4 was the first generations of the heavens and the earth. What became of the heavens and the earth? That's what teledot means. What became of so and so? So, what became of the heavens and the earth we see in chapter 2, man is to rule it. In chapter 3, man totally messed up and let creation rule him, the serpent. And then in chapter 4, man is totally degrading down to the point of murder. Seth begins to worship God. His line begins to worship God. That ends... Teledot 2. Teledot 3 starts in chapter 5, and we follow Seth's line, and we say how godly they are. And now chapter 6, in the first verse, the first eight verses, summarize the end of the second Teledot. So, next week we get into the third one, which is the flood. The reason I bring this up is because you see a contrast. At the end of the second Teledot, there in 4, verse 25, it was all bad, and then these last two verses of chapter 4... Just this ray of hope. Adam had Seth. Seth had Enosh. And Enosh began to call upon the name of the Lord. Ray of hope. Now in chapter 5. The third, the second Teledot. <laughs> it's all good. You're walking with God. And then it ends right here in chapter 6. A ray of darkness. Can you have a ray of darkness? <laughs> Shadows begin to creep over that light. And we begin to see this is bad. 
and then going to go and see the flood. So that's where we are in the book. Some of you don't even care about the Telos. I think it's completely fascinating. So if you checked out, now you can check back in because we're back into the book. <laughs> so as we open Genesis 6, we're looking for what is the sin, what is the reason that God saw worthy of destroying his creation with water? What is the reason? That's the sin we're looking for. And we come to verse 2 and instantly find a serious problem for scholars. The sons of God, who are they? First time we've seen this phrase in Genesis. They saw the daughters of man, that they were attractive. And they took as their wives any that they chose. Now in verse 4, the Nephilim, some of your translations might put giants in there. Nephilim is the Hebrew word. Giants is the translation. So depends on what kind of translation you have is what it will read. Nephilim slash giants. So there's these Nephilim, these giants, all of a sudden. So sons of God, who are they? Daughters of men. It sounds pretty logical. They're women. Then Nephilim. Giants? What in the world is their connection? And God looks at this, and verse 3 says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. In other words, I'm going to give him 120 years, and then the flood will come. So 120 years of grace to let man pull back from his sinful ways. But we want to know, what is the sin that is so worthy of God wiping mankind out? Sons of God. Who are they? Because apparently the sin centers around the way they treat the daughters of men. There's three theories about the sons of God. And I will admit to you that none of them seem to be the right one. Because although they're the three best theories, these three theories all have severe problems to them. So none of them really seem to fit. Although, I will um, take a stab at what I've recently... I've leaned towards every single one of these at some point in my life. I'm starting to lean towards one in particular, and I'll share that. But I'm going to order these in order from what is the oldest theory to the newest theory. Okay? So, no particular order. Just oldest to newest, which is a particular order. So, I don't know why I said that. But I mean, it's not like my favorite versus my... Usually, you know, people when they do a list, they start with their least favorite and then end with the right one. I'm not doing that. I don't want you guys to think that. All these are possibly valid and totally not valid at the same time. You'll see what I mean. So, the first theory is that these sons of God are fallen angels. We, we conclude that because this phrase, sons of God, every time it's used in the Old Testament, refers to angels. Specifically in Job chapter 1 verse 6, where it taught, you guys know the story, it opens up with the scene in heaven, Satan comes before God, and, you know, they're, they're talking about Job. I bet Job's going to curse you to your face, and I bet he's not, and that whole deal. But it opens up by saying, when the sons of God came before the Lord. It seems to be an angelic context. And, in fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament just translates it, the angels of God. It just goes right ahead and makes that assumption. So, that is one support that these are fallen angels, these sons of God. Um, Matthew 22, verse 30. Well, actually, let me, let me back up a step. What, 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 what's the big deal if these are fallen angels? 
Well, apparently, fallen angels are taking women and having sexual relations with these women, and this is how the theory works, and the child that was the result of this sexual relationship was the Nephilim, the giants. So you have a demon taking a woman as its wife and producing a child which ended up becoming this giant. <laughs> if you imagine, it's probably like half demon, half man. So definitely some monster, some terrible creature coming out of this mama. And there is possibly reference towards mythology here. You hear about stories of Hercules and other mighty warriors or Achilles and all the other myths. Some people say these myths could have credibility that there actually were these superhero men on the earth at one time. So, maybe. But, um, I think some of you are already thinking of some problems with this theory, but let me go through the support, okay? One of them is that um, in Second Peter and in Jude, both of them speak of angels that at one time left their proper domain and are now shackled in not just Hades, but a pit far below Hades called Tartum. Tartarum, actually. And there they are shackled in gloomy darkness until the last day. So, so they would say, these demons left their proper domain. They're not supposed to be taking women, but they did. They left it, and we know that angels can assume human bodies. We see they do that with Abraham in Genesis 19. So they assume human bodies. They have these marital, marital relationships with women, and God judges them. This is the sin. He judges them, puts them in chains to be released at a later day. Um, more... Oh, I'm sorry? Oh, yeah. And, and that's, that's a very good point, because... If Revelation chapter 9 refers to demons, chapter 9 Revelation refers to these hideous, um, grotesque, locust creatures that come out of the abyss of the earth and they torment man for so many months and man can't, I think nine months, and man cannot die. <laughs> They're just tormenting man. And many commentators think that this is a release of demons from the earth perhaps these demons that are chained up in gloomy darkness. Now, if this theory is right, and these demons that have sex with women are the ones that are put down in chains down in the bottom of the earth, they're down there for a long time. They've been down there for a very long time. And when Revelation 9 finally happens and they're released, you guys have all seen mad ravenous dogs that want to chase a squirrel or the mailman that are on a leash? And they're just like chomping at the bit, but they can't get away. And when the leash breaks, what happens? They sit there, right? No. They, bam! Like a torpedo. Imagine these demons just chasing. I want, uh, I want freedom. And they're angry. And finally God releases them. And imagine this torment they're going to inflict on man. It's, it's an interesting parallel with Revelation and Genesis, especially when you consider Revelation is God's judgment on the earth. Genesis 6 here is God's judgment on the earth. Interesting that this theory does seem to have some credence a little bit. Um, of course, this theory provides um, legitimacy to why there's giants on the earth, if they're results of demon women. Uh, their children will probably be giants. The Nephilim, there's four. And the earliest interpreters support this theory. And um, there is actually, some of you might think, can demons have sex with women? 
This is a theory. This is a theory. Well, there are testimonies. Are they credible or not? I, I've never had it happen to me, so I don't know. But there are testimonies of people claiming demons trying to have sex with them. So, perhaps it could happen. Um, and then the last support is that Canaanite mythology portrayed um, giants, because the Canaanites had giants in land, obviously, when they went to the Promised Land, they saw those giants. Um, they portray giants as the offspring of demons and women. So, that's the support for the theory. What are the problems with it? Jesus says in Matthew 22, 30 that the angels do not marry. So why should fallen angels marry? Now, you could say, Jesus said the angels in heaven don't marry, and he said they don't, not cannot. Well, you can take that either way. Um, the other problem is that this this, trans, this this theory seems to root the story too much in mythology. It, it almost loses its reality because the Canaanites have theology, or mythology like this, so it's kind of just making the whole thing mythical and not really historical account. Um, Numbers 13.33, which we read about the Nephilim, if these Nephilim are the product of demon-woman relationships and God wipes it out from the flood, how, how do you explain that they reappear in Numbers? They just, either they survive the flood, which the Bible says nothing survived, except the people on the ark, or they somehow reappear, meaning there's another horde of demons having sex with women. It, it wouldn't make, that to me doesn't make sense. Like, you can't explain how they suddenly reappear in numbers. And then Jude, which is one of the texts people support for these being demons, it actually seems to more likely be talking about the homosexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read that and take your own take on that. And um, I think this is the most convincing problem. He's right there in verse 3. That says, My spirit shall not abide a man forever, for he is flesh. <laughs> and in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And verse 6, The Lord was sorry that he had made man. Who does God blame the problem on? Demons or man? Flesh, man, it's very, it's very clear that he's saying the problem isn't demons, it's man. And then the other problem is that nowhere in the Pentateuch, that's Genesis to Deuteronomy, does Moses ever refer to angels as the sons of God. So that would be very inconsistent with the authorship. So that's, take your take on that one, that's theory one. Theory two, the line of Seth is who the sons of God are. We have seen... A contrast, in chapter 4, the line of Cain, bad. Chapter 5, line of Seth, good. Now chapter 6. So what are we going to see? Judgment's coming. Why? Because the sons of God, the line of Seth, the good guys, took the daughters of man, the line of Cain, the bad guys, and began to marry one another. What this theory says is that there was compromise between the godly and the ungodly, and this compromise wasn't good to God, because now the godly were becoming ungodly. So because of the compromise and the mixed marriages, God wiped man off the face of the planet. Now, this theory is probably the most popular um, across the board. Most people lean to this because it's the most conservative theory. It is consistent with Moses' teaching through the Pentateuch. Moses throughout would highlight the fact that you are not to mix your marriages with other nations because they're ungodly. You will become ungodly if you marry them. Don't do it. It's all throughout the Pentateuch. 
So it supports Moses' message. And referring to the godly as sons of God, of course, is biblical terminology. In John chapter 1, we see that he gave us the right to become the sons of God. In Exodus 4.22, God looks at Israel as his firstborn son. So the godly are, in a sense, the sons of God. It fits the biblical terminology. The problem with this theory is it doesn't really explain who the Nephilim are. Who are they? Um, they, they say, well, Nephilim means giants, but the root word for Nephilim, Neph, really means fallen ones. So it's God's perspective of what man became. The offspring of these mixed marriages are fallen ones. They have fallen from God's standard. Okay, I, I suppose. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, sorry. I, you just hear something like, what, what is that? Um, it seems like terminal, ter, making sons of God to be the Sethites and the daughters of men, the Cainites, seems to force the meaning of these phrases. Because he's been talking about Cain and Seth very plainly, then all of a sudden he like gives them figurative names. It isn't consistent. It seems like you're trying to force the meaning of these phrases. And the third problem is that if it really refers to the Sethites, sons of Yahweh would be a better term than sons of God, which you guys know in the Hebrew, God is Elohim. Yahweh is Lord, all capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's Yahweh. So it seemed better to choose sons of Yahweh than sons of God. Those are the problems of theory number two. And theory number three... Um, is it actually an ancient theory, but it's starting to gain steam in modern scholarship. Some of my favorite authors and most stimulating authors um, have been starting to side this way. Theory one, the most fascinating, if you ask me. Demons like, imploding on the earth and having sex with women. That's crazy. That's just a thought. Like, oh, demon children everywhere. Like, you parents think that you guys are demon children. Oh, no. <laughs> they know nothing. Theory two is kind of the most conservative. It's like, oh yeah, that's the safest route. You know, no one is going to get freaked out by that translation. Theory three, I call it stimulating because it's, it seems the most rooted in culture. But it has its problems. I'm not trying to push this one as the theory. It is this, that the sons of God are divine kingship. Sons of God, that word as I said is Elohim. Usually, Elohim is translated God. But Elohim also can mean leader or ruler or judge, all of which God is. So you can see how the word is translated God. So it could be the sons of leaders, rulers, or just the phrase sons of God fits too, because in this time, kings were considered to be either God himself, the son of a god, or the representation of a god. So that the king would actually be called the son of God. And you guys know from just your general knowledge that the pharaohs called themselves a god. So this is sort of has some historical sway to it. Um, in 417, we see that Cain builds a city. So we know that cities exist. How do cities start? How are cities run? They're run by kings. How do kings gain authority? Think about this. This is ancient days. The world is beginning to multiply and all. And, and 
Well, how do cities start? Well, we know after the flood from records that the just right after the flood, um, this is how it started. Families that are wandering about decide, wouldn't it be better if we all teamed up and had a better economy and safety? So they would team up and part of the process of starting a city was that everyone agreed on one religious worship system. Once that system was agreed upon, they could all be one happy family. So, bam, they get their priests in order, their whole worship system. Because, of course, they depended on whatever gods for their food. They prayed to the wheat gods so that they would have wheat. They prayed to the rain gods so that it would rain. So, religion was huge. They depended upon it. Of course, they perverted the real god for nature, as you guys know from Romans 1. So, they would get together and they would have their priest system and they'd be totally dedicated to the worship. Meanwhile, in the works was a man who wanted to rule the people. And the priests team up with him and other powerful people. And they exalt him and the priests begin to lie to the people. This guy is the representation of the God that we worship. We need to follow him. To make the gods happy, follow him. So, the only way to gain authority in a neutral area is either by force, just hold a gun and say, you're all going to obey me. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Or, it's by forgery and fraud. And that's what the kings would often do is deceive the people that they are actually a representation of the God that they worship. And if they want the God to be happy with them, they have to follow Him. He's the representation. The way you treat me is the way you're treating God. And the reason we have myths from these ancient cultures is these myths were fabricated literature to persuade the people who often couldn't read. They were just at the mercy of what people said that this truly is, here's a story that shows how this God came to being with us. So, divine kingship. These kings sitting over the people as representatives or even as the literal son of God. And the people had to obey because they feared the king. He is the son of God. Now, if he is the son of God, he is the son of the creator of everything. And, if the people revere him as such, he can literally do whatever he wants. He can take any woman that he wants, because they're all his property. He's the son of the creator. It's all his. So none of them could argue with him. So, when it says the sons of God, these divine kings, took any woman that they chose, it would make sense that these kings started to in their greed and in their lust, wanted harems. That's a collection of women that belong to a king. And she's really pretty, she's really hot, grabbing them from the kingdom to be his own. We do have documentation that, after the flood at least, there was a problem with what's called the right of the first night. And that's when a king heard of a marriage in the land and he would go and intrude on the marriage and say, as the king, I have the right of the first wedding night. So he would take that virgin and they would do their thing at night. And then he would return her to the soon-to-be husband. Any king in the land had that right. She's my possession. And they claimed, if you don't let me do this, you're going to hurt the fertility. That's the ability to reproduce. You're going to hurt the reproduction of our land. The gods need to do this to help all the women in our land bear more children. It's totally like voodoo type of 
superstition that the religions were. So they would have right the first night. Can you imagine that? Like, you're in a wedding, you're all excited, you're all stoked, like, I'm finally going to have my wife, and this is going to be a great night. And then the king says, not so fast, I get her first. That's definitely a terrible sin. Other occasions that happened were every New Year, they would have a festival in order, it was obviously very religious, and it was in order to plead to the gods, Give us fertility this year. Let our farms blossom. Let our flocks have kids and abound. Let our families grow. And in order to manipulate the gods to bring that fertility, they would reenact fertility. Their worship based upon manipulating the gods. Meaning, we're going to act out what you want us to do. So, the king, who was son of God, represented the gods, and the prettiest woman in the land represented the city. And on that that festival, the New Year festival, the king would take the prettiest woman of the land, whoever she was, whoever she belonged to, and they would have sex. It was a symbol of the God bringing germination, reproduction to the city. And they would say, hooray, we're going to have a good year. And then it would be done. Every year this happened. <coughs> This is definitely sin and crime in the eyes of God that's worth wiping the sins of the earth away. Wash this away. This is terrible. And the worst of it is that these kings, in their pride, knowing full well that they're human, deifying themselves were actually denying the true God. They were leading people away from the true God to worship them. And God said, this cannot be. My people cannot dwell in a society like this. I must wipe it out. I think you can see why this one is very attractive to me of recent. I did a lot of reading on this, so I'm totally stoked about it. There are problems with this theory, though. And the first is this. It all is based upon <coughs> post-flood assumptions. What I mean by this is we're pre-flood. We don't have documentation of what happened before the flood because the flood wiped it away. But from documentation that was right after the flood, what did those early civilizations do? This, all these facts I spewed out to you is what those civilizations did. So this theory is assuming that the civilizations before the flood did the same thing that civilizations after the flood did. We have no proof what happened before the flood. We're making assumptions. Obviously, that's a little bit weak. It's not proof. It's just good theorizing. The second problem is if sons of God is referring to these divine kings, which was a well-known fact in Moses' day, hello, the pharaohs, they, they were in Egypt, they knew all about Pharaoh, okay, being a god and all. If, if that being such a well-known fact, why wouldn't he just come out and say the kings? The kings who thought they were gods took women. And said he skews it with sons of God. It, it doesn't seem too direct. And then the third problem is that though secular culture regards these kings as divine, nowhere in scripture does scripture actually refer to these kings as divine beings. So it's making an assumption that Moses was freely saying, let's pretend they're divine beings. I mean, he's pulling from secular context, but nowhere else does that happen in the Bible. So it's just some random spot that it happens. Those are the problems. So, sons of God. Those three views, whoa, I don't know. This is the one I'm leaning towards now. It's a combination of one and three. 
demons and kings. I, I'm, I'm thinking that perhaps these divine kings were possessed by demons. They were promoted. They, they were given power by demons so that the people really believed them. They're not demons themselves, but they're possessed and guided and directed by demons. There is evidence of this in Scripture. Daniel chapter 9 talks about the prince of Persia, that there's a demon that works amongst the country of Persia. So we know that there are those authorities working through kings and countries. And also Ezekiel 28 seems to hint at the king of Tyre being manipulated and influenced by Satan. So there is some evidence of that, and that would seem possibly true. Demon kings, <laughs> if you will, ruling over the people, and the children being the offspring, the Nephilim, the giants were um, demon-possessed as well, part of this demonic possession family, and they were given powers to look like these great war heroes, war heroes, excuse me, so they were called giants. They were mighty men, maybe not literal giants, but just mighty men of war. That's kind of what I was thinking. But, I'll give one more fifth theory. And it's not even really a theory. This is, ask someone, you're like, wow, okay. Here's the application. Whatever all this means, I see something cool here. Here's the sons of God taking the daughters of women definitely seems to be some sort of sexual sin going on, whatever the case, that seems to be part of what's going on. And the result of this sexual, this lustful, this fleshly action is, verse 4, the Nephilim. It's giant. Now in verse 3, God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. Why? Because he is flesh. Does not the Bible in Galatians 5 talk about the war between the flesh and the spirit? How they're contrary to one another. And, and they have opposite desires. And the flesh must dom the, sorry, the spirit must dominate our flesh. That's how the sanctified, godly Christian walks in this life. The spirit dominating his flesh, so doing his sins, not that he never sins, but he's um, his sins are not um, controlling him anymore. The Spirit's controlling him. That's what the Christian life is all about. But the heathen is dominated by the flesh. The flesh is controlling him. And the more that you and I give in to our fleshly, sinful tendencies, the bigger the flesh and the stronger it becomes. It begins to control us instead of the Spirit. The, the battle starting to go this way because we're feeding the flesh. It's getting bigger. And the more that we feed our flesh and our lustful appetites, the stronger they become till they become so big that they're Nephilim. They're giants. And, and, and we're like the Israelites on the edge of the promised land. We say, whoa, we can't deal with this giant. I give up. And the giants have total manipulation over us. And maybe some of you are there tonight totally in bondage to your lusts and your flesh. And you just look at this sin problem or this pride problem, whatever is going on, and you're just like, it's too big for me. It's a giant. I just, I can't do anything. It totally manhandles me. It's got me locked in this dungeon like Pilgrim's Progress when Christian and Hopeful get locked in giant despair's dungeon. Just can't do anything. I'm in a cage. I'm a captive. I do whatever it wants. 
And I know all of you that are walking with God and know what I'm talking about. You've had these struggles, maybe in the past or it's, it's still happening. How do we get the Nephilim to be conquered so that Spirit rules once again? I think the conclusion, the answer, is in verse 8. Where it says, But, all this happening, the flesh is taking over, it's a monster. But, Noah found favor. And that can also be translated, the same word for grace, grace and favor, it's inter- translated. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So the whole world is dominated by their flesh and it's so bad that it's just their flesh is just their sinful tendencies is just a giant completely dominating them. But Noah is different. The Spirit of God rules him because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Guys, that's what we need to dominate our giants of lust. We need God's grace to empower us to slay these giants. We often think of grace as being that initial purifying power. Um, It dismisses our sin. And that's that's totally right. That's what God's grace does. It says, I'm a sinner. And God says, that's okay. And they've done nothing. I'm just going to wipe that away. You're, You're clean. That is an element of grace. But grace continues in the Christian life as a power, not just for dismissal of sin, but as a power for deliverance from sin. When you read um, Romans chapter 6, what does Paul say? Well, since we're saved by grace, Paul, shouldn't we just keep sinning that grace may abound? True. The more I sin, the more that grace has to dismiss that sin. That's true. But Paul answers and says, no way. Because you've received grace, you've died to your sin, and you're walking in a new life. You're totally changed. Jesus is controlling you. You're now His master. Summation of that whole chapter. What Paul is implying is that no, we shouldn't sin to make grace look more glorious, because you're only elevating one aspect of grace, the dismissal of sin part. Instead, you'll make grace look more glorious if you walk delivered from your sin. Because that's what grace does. Grace delivers us from sin. Because I can't do it. I can't, the less I struggle with, I can't just say, alright, I'm not going to do this again. You know what happens every time? I might last for a week, but I sin again. I need God's grace, His favor, His power that He gives to me for no other reason than He chooses to, to help me fight these battles. That's what we need is His grace. As Isaiah, this verse has become dear to me. I just discovered it this week. It's a great verse. Um, Isaiah 26, 12. Lord, You will ordain peace for us because You indeed have done for us all our works. God, You will ordain peace for us because You've done all of our works. That was illuminating to me. It's like you, you struggle with things. You're like, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do better. And I said, God has ordained that peace come upon me because He's done all of it. Isaiah 26, 12. He's done all of the work. You know what that means for me? Brandon, stop 
confiding and start trusting in the grace of God to take care of your weaknesses. Notice that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So it's in, it's in the Lord's eyes that there's grace. There's a Nephilim. Oh, help, I don't know what to do. But in God's eyes there's grace and Noah was spared from it. When you get to Numbers 13 and you see the Nephilim there, whose eyes did they see the Nephilim in? The people's eyes. They said, we, the ten spies, we saw the Nephilim and they are too mighty for us. We can't do it. So, in a sense, the Nephilim conquered them because they didn't go into the land. You see the contrast. Looking at it through my eyes, this is too big, I can't do it. But when it's looked at through God's eyes, there's grace through his eyes. And he says, Nephilim, I don't call them giants, I call them fallen ones. Because they're going to be totally slayed under my grace that I give to you. And you're going to walk victoriously. And that's great news. Just, just trust in His grace. Just rest. Just let it go. Let God have the balance. Just plead every day. God, I need Your grace and Your power to fight this. I, I can't do it on my own. Let's close in Deuteronomy 1. I want to show us one thing to, to finish this thought. Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is Moses' reflection upon the Numbers 13 scene when they were too scared to go on the promised land. Um... um 29. Deuteronomy 1.29. Now, we're talking about staying away and not being conquered by our sin is one struggle indeed. But you know what I began to learn? Is that when the Nephilim do, when my sin, when my lust begins to conquer me and I, I fall into it, I have found that moment. When I have fallen and I've asked for forgiveness and God's restoring me to his grace, I found that moment to be more difficult than the staying away from sin moment. Okay, follow what I'm saying. It's when I am overcome with sin, that's when I find sin most difficult. Staying away from sin is sometimes easy. We fail in that, but it's not as hard as when we fall into sin because when we fall in, we want more than ever to make it right for ourselves, don't we? Have you ever experienced that? Like, Dang, I did again. Lord, I, I won't ever again. And, and we start to, in our own minds, in our own strength, begin to devise ways that I'm not going to do it again. And suddenly, because we sin, we start to have this self-focus rather than this God-focus. When we're walking away from the we're totally God-focused. I'm like, God, I think you're helping me. You're totally doing it. But once we sin, it becomes us-focused. like, I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. I'm going to fight against it. Okay. So, Deuteronomy 1.29. Moses says to the people in his sermon... I said to you, when they were at the promised land, but they turned away for fear, he says, I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them, the Nephilim. The Lord your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you. Note that. Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Now, this is talking about his grace towards them. He did this for you in Egypt and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord our God carried you as a man carries his son. This is totally grace. As a man does it for him. He carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. But, you guys remember when the people realized, we can't do it. The Nephilim are too big. So then Moses said, okay, because you guys don't want to go in the promised land, guess what? 
40-year death march until all of you die, and then your kids will take the land. And do you remember how the people responded? Oh, no, we're sorry, we didn't mean it. We could totally do it. And a little group of people got their swords sharpened and put their armor on and said, let's go take them now. And most said, don't do it, don't do it. God's not with you. And they go over the hill, ah, disappear. They come running back over and the enemy's chasing them, right? That's how it went. This is their attitude. Look at this in Deuteronomy 1 verse 34. The Lord heard your words and was angered. We don't want to go in. So he's angry and he swore. Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers except Caleb and Joshua because he wholly followed the Lord. Verse 37. Even with me... Oh, I'm in the wrong place. Keep going. I already told you all this. Go to verse 41. So then, they heard, oh no, we have to do the death march. No. Then, you rebels answered me, Moses, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight. We want to make things right. So we ourselves are going to go up and fight. What did God say that he would do for them? Back in verse 30, the Lord your God goes before you, will he himself fight for you. But we sinned. We blew it. We know it. And so it's our normal tendency. I'm going to make this right, God. I'm sorry. I'm going to make this right to you. So then we say, we ourselves are going to go fight against this Nephilim, this monster of the flesh. You guys see that tendency within us? That's how it becomes such a struggle, a downfall. We sin once, and then we almost keep on sinning because no longer are we letting God fight, but we say, God, I'm sorry I messed up. I'm going to take this into my own hands. I'm going to draw the sword. I'm going to do this. And we keep falling and falling and falling because we're in this mentality that I have to fight to make things right when God just says, don't look at it in your eyes. My eyes have grace. Look at it my way. And then you'll be delivered. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And whatever you guys are struggling with, this is totally a faith thing. It's so hard to just put, this is a three-step application. Just go to the Lord and, and pray this certain prayer. It's not how His grace comes to us. It's a total faith thing. You have to just completely trust God, like Isaiah 26, 12, and say, you've ordained for me peace because you've done the work. So may God increase our faith and grant us grace in our struggles with the Nephilim, that we may find favor and His blessings in our life. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that You reserve grace for us, that despite so much sin, You can look at people like Noah, people like us, and give us grace. So God, help my brothers and sisters and myself in our struggles with our sin, and give us Your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.